Welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are the retro show. It talks about all the baby boomer memories growing up as a baby boomer. If you were born between 1945 and 1965, you're going to really enjoy what's coming up because we address all the movies, the radio, the TV shows, all the good times, the pop culture, and just about everything in between here on the show. I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm George. And today's one of those sort of sad but bittersweet shows. There's some happiness in the sadness where we set aside most of the show to talk about notables and the baby boomer years, our growing up years that we know, in this case, musicians that have left us, and we are going to preview a few of them, talk a little bit about some of the more prominent ones, although they're just going right and left, it seems, lately, but there are four to speak of, and we're going to be talking about them shortly. We all know that as Glenn Campbell, Wichita lineman. Glenn Campbell passed away earlier this year, 2017, and uh, his music is missed, his his personality, his persona. Some of the memories that went with the Glenn Campbell music over the years where we grew up, that being especially in the 60s and the 70s, of course, during the 80s, he's one of those timeless American originals where his, his music will never die out, although he's gone. Uh, he passed away to... Uh, Symptoms from uh, Alzheimer's disease, I believe, in August. Yes, in August. It was in the uh, summer, Mike, but yes. just so many good memories, so many good tunes. You put Glenn Campbell together with a guy named Jimmy Webb, and you're going to have some magic happening. And not only was he a great singer, musician, but he was a good actor in his own right. Some notable roles that Glenn Campbell acted in that we can talk about. But your memories of Glenn Campbell, Smitty, you've, I've got a few years on you, but it don't matter how old you are, you're going to remember something about Glenn Campbell. It doesn't matter, Mike, because for me, Glenn Campbell, uh, very good memories. When I was uh, in the mid-70s, I was a kid about 13, 12, 13, 14 years old, and um, I used to listen to a radio station that we that we still have here in San Diego, although it doesn't isn't anything like what it used to be back in the day, and that was KOGO, AM600, which at that time was a full-service station. Mike, a few years ago, you and I went to the KOGO transmitter and did a piece from there. I used to listen to that because as a kid, my next-door neighbors, who uh, who I really loved, they were very, very wonderful people, they always had a radio in their patio on, and they always had KOGO tuned to it. And it was would have been unusual, as native San Diegans would know, for uh, a kid to be listening to to KOGO, but I used to listen to it because my neighbors listened to it, and I was emulating what they would do it, and I liked the music. 
And two particular songs of Glenn Campbell's were played. Well, there were several, but there were two that really stand out. One was this one, Wichita Lineman, and the other one was Rhinestone Cowboy. I associate Glenn Campbell's music with those sort of those wonder years of learning more about radios and exploring things and being a young teenager. And it may not really sound like it matches, but it really was for me. And I was listening right now as we were playing that clip of Wichita Lineman. It just takes me completely back to a, to a different time, a different era, a different place. And those are my recollections. It, it's really evocative for me of that era. I uh, remember people that are no longer here and remember times that were a lot of fun. My cousin that had the TV shop. It's really interesting how those songs can really just bring back certain memories, put you back in a time and place. You're so right, Smitty, and you talk about the 70s, in my case, the mid to late 60s, I think probably gentle on my mind. You know, this was a time when the songs, the lyrics, they actually told stories. And yeah. No matter how old you were, I could have been, I was probably 12, 13, maybe probably 12 when Gentle on My Mind came out, but the pictures from the lyrics that you would, here's a guy who's going to hit the road and he keeps a sleeping bag behind this gal's couch and, you know, he's he's going to hit the road or, or, you know, Wichita lineman, this guy driving this driving, Midwest, yeah. the cornfields and telephone pole after line pole after power pole and he's staring up and just, just the word pictures and it would take you off to a different place. And you get a guy like Glenn Campbell to sing them and he created a, a, his own nuance. It wasn't rock and roll. It really wasn't country. Right. It certainly wasn't jazz. It certainly wasn't what you would call traditional mainstream American pop music like Frank Sinatra. But here's this, I guess in the 60s, the incorrect political term, he was a hick. He grew up in a small town in Arkansas, made it big, and let's not forget, he also was one of the Beach Boys for a while, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. he had his own TV show, right. now did uh, Glenn Campbell's Good Time Hour, did, do you remember seeing that on Sunday nights on CBS, or was that before your time, Smith? That was before my I know, time. I know George is going to say yeah, something, George, George is going to remember it, right. I know George. No, that was a little bit before my time. Okay. Of course, being the TV historian that I am, uh, sort of amateur historian, I am aware of it. it yeah. Was, yeah. He did have that, but George remembers that show. I love that program, and I want to follow up with what Mike said, is pointing out, and we use this term in another program, but Glenn Campbell was very relatable, and in this case... He was someone that was relatable both to myself as a young person, a very young person initially, and also my parents. And I think this was very surprising. My father really liked Glenn Campbell. He particularly enjoyed uh, the song he sang, By the Time I Get to Phoenix. My mother, who is from Texas, really loved the song Galveston. And I, that's probably my all-time favorite of Glenn Campbell's is Galveston. And having spent a lot of boyhood summers in Texas with my mom and her family, uh, that song, Galveston, evokes a lot of memories for me, and I still feel it every time I listen to that on my iPod. I wanted to follow up with what Gilbert said, and that is that having grown up in the 60s uh, and then, of course, going on to high school and college in the 70s, what I thought was interesting about Glenn Campbell was that it seemed like I can look back at his life and his career, and there was great memorable hits when I was in elementary school, junior high school, high school, college, and thereafter. He was a, a, a person that had enormous resilience, and his songs uh, were such that they, they didn't seem to necessarily fit a being in the 60s or 70s. 
they were very uh, relatable and, as I said, timeless. He was quintessential over the decades, 60s right on through, up to and including his death. There was His daughter had, had set up a production, a recording, and he was in, I would say, not late stages, but middle stages of the Alzheimer's effect, and he couldn't remember the lyrics, and his daughter would talk through an earpiece. Yeah. Uh, an ear post, and, and he made one last album, much like a lot of our notables we've talked about. Johnny Cash made a last album, a few others that have passed away. The thing about Glenn Campbell, he was he was apolitical. He wasn't a country-western guy. He really wasn't a rock star. He was a little bit of everything. He didn't go to the left, but like, he didn't go to the right. I interviewed him. I was part of an interview. Let me correct that. I was not one-on-one interview, but we were part of an interview, and he was actually, he was dead against the Vietnam War, but by contract, he couldn't mention it and talk about it, nor in that period of time did you want to take a political side, unlike today, where everybody's everybody's got a chip, it seems like, in one direction or the other, and they get up and get an award. The first thing they want to do is, is take down whoever they, what side of the aisle they don't like. With Glenn Campbell, he kept it cool, but he said, I did sneak one in. He goes, I was so against the Vietnam War, and that's Galveston, which is also my favorite, George. That's my favorite Glenn Campbell song of all time. If you read into the lyrics, it is a protest song. It's a guy going off to war. He doesn't know if he's coming back. He's scared to death. There's a girl he left behind in Galveston waiting for him, and all he knows is he's terrified, and he hears the guns roaring, the cannons shouting. Yes. And he said, that's... That was that was my protest message. It was rather at the poignant. Time. It was rather. But he said I couldn't tell it, and it came out in '72 toward the end of the war, not during the heyday of the '60s. But he was a cool guy, and he came off as kind of a southern guy. But he could belt out the mainstream too, the pop songs, uh, Southern Nights. I want to ask some you. of the other songs. You know, George, you you grew up in L.A. in the in the Valley, and he was as prominent on the rock and roll stations, KJ Boss Radio. Southern as, Nights was a, was one of the most popular hits while I was in college yeah. at USC, and I Rhinestone Cowboy, Rhinestone Cowboy yeah. as well. I wanted to ask you this question, Mike, because obviously you have a greater depth of experience on this than I would. But the question is, is that his ability as a musician, because I wanted to say that there is a great clip that you can find on YouTube, and I can't recall if this was on the Glenn Campbell Hour or whether it was on Hee Haw, but there is a fantastic duet where he is playing with Roy Clark, and they do the best instrumental version I have ever heard of the classic cowboy song, Ghost Riders in the Sky. I mean, it is fast, it is furious, it is one of the most amazing clips. And I myself, you know, thought that it really demonstrated his technical proficiency as well as his artistic proficiency in terms of, of uh, handling the uh, the string instruments. And we know him, of course, as a great vocalist, but sure. what but do you be- think? Before that, he was quite a name. He was the name in studio Guitar. Yes, uh, he was a member of the Wrecking Crew. So he Phil obviously Spector's had the guy. training, is what you're saying. He had the training. He was a guitarist. His his inspiration was Django Reinhardt. Reinhardt. Well, take and, a look uh, at that. Take a look yeah. or a listen of that of that take clip on listen. YouTube, and I yeah. think you will be suitably impressed. I shared it with my dad recently, who loves that song, and he loved it. I'm remembering that he was uh, part of the original twelve string guitar. Yes, with Rob Dillard. Doug Dillard and Dean Webb. Yeah, the Dillards. And the Dillards. And, and weren't they uh, on Andy Griffith, the Dillards? The Dillards were on Andy Griffith, the Dillards. He also sat in with Nitty Gritty Dirt Band from Long Beach. And uh, he was he's a prominent guitarist, very well-known, very accomplished. 
and a key member of the Wrecking Crew, the Wrecking Crew studio, Phil Spector's group in L.A., that produced almost every rock and roll song that made it in the charts over the 60s So and you 70s. can say, Mike, and with great conviction, that he is truly a musical artist in terms of playing the instrument as well as singing uh, on, yeah. on both sides, yeah. an yeah. artist of the highest level. Where a lot of entertainers go directly into vocal or lyrics, Jimmy Webb, you never really hear Jimmy Webb, it's noted as singing a song, but he wrote most of the songs from Fifth Dimension songs to Glenn Campbell and everybody in between. But you think of Glenn Campbell, well, musicians, insider musicians, know Glenn Campbell primarily as one of the best 12- and 6-string guitarists that they've ever worked with. So that impression... Beach Boys brought him in. Okay, that affirms in the impression I had. Well, yeah. we have to say one thing, he had a great hairstyle, too. Yes, oh, he did. I he love that hair. Everybody <laughs> envied that hair. Envied that hair. The number of, of artists that he worked with uh, was just amazing. He worked with Elvis. He worked with, uh, with Dean Martin, Nat King Cole, Bobby Darin, Frank Sinatra... One thing that I, I was reading last night in preparation for our broadcast today about Glenn Campbell had very, very humble beginnings. Yeah. They were very, very poor. Mm -hmm. They were sharecroppers. They would pick cotton. And um, he befriended um, Elvis Presley on the set of Viva Las Vegas. And part of that was because they both had very humble beginnings where they would work, you know, you'd work a whole day for a dollar fifty, you know. Remarkable. And, yeah, yeah you'd, you'd work the whole day out the, in the fields. Yeah, on the fields picking read cotton. some of their stories, their biographies. They'd go back to the cabin or the house and they'd clean up a little. And then they'd go out at 7 o'clock and they'd play roadhouses. Yeah. Because they loved the music. They'd, they'd play a roadhouse for... For $10 for that night and get done when the bar closed at midnight, turn around, go home, get back up at 4.30 or yeah. 5 and go back out to the field. It's incredible. The fields now, work. Talk exactly. about that work ethic. Exactly. You yeah. hear people nowadays, well, I got three jobs just so I can make ends meet. These are guys that pick cotton all day. You talk just about to be able to eat. Roy Orbison. Physical uh, labor. Yeah. Charlie Rich. Mm -hmm. Charlie Rich was, yeah, he was in Mississippi picking cotton and writing songs at night. Yeah. After 10 hours, stooped over picking cotton and be able to write songs and play the piano. You talk about the swaggerts. You talk about Jerry Lee Lewis. Well, Glenn Campbell fits in that same genre of people mm -hmm. that wanted it so bad yeah. to get out of those fields. And dirt poor, literally. Literally dirt, 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 dirt poor. Dirt poor. Dirt Look up poor. dirt poor, folks. Look up dirt poor in your contemporary definitions. And I guarantee none of you listeners know what dirt poor is. Here's a quote from uh, Glenn Campbell. I said, I picked cotton for $1.25, 100 pounds. If you worked your tail off, you could pick 80 or 90 pounds a day. So they were just doing that just to eat, just to yeah. put some food on the table. Yeah. Mike, following up on something that you said earlier, I think one of the things that I like about Glenn Campbell was that he really was not, as you said before, and I'm repeating your words, he really wasn't country and he really wasn't uh, mainstream. He was kind of in the middle taking a little bit of the best out of all the different genres. And I think, yeah. to me, that's one of the reasons why he's so endearing and why I like him so much, why I love his music so much. Well, he could cross back and forth at ease. Yes. And not intimidate or offend any one of the audiences, the listeners from any one genre. The country western people loved him, the pop people, and he could go back and forth. He traveled at will across genres. 
I think, again, I want to stress, I don't know about, about your situation when you guys were growing up, but I think it's remarkable that he was someone that my parents seemed to really like. I mean, a lot of times parents would just tolerate, if you're sitting in the, in the uh, car with your parents and uh, a favorite song comes up and you turn the music up, parents might be tolerant of it. Maybe they wouldn't. I mean, they might tell you to turn it off or change the station. But I know that my parents genuinely enjoyed him. I can't say that about other artists from that same era of the 60s. Yeah. And our parents, as far as AM and FM radio, George, our parents detested the stuff we might listen to on the radio, but loved the very same artists that we loved. We had that in common. Mm-hmm. Uh, my folks, they detested Conejo, Jimmy Rabbit, Carol A., and later on on a pirate FM radio in L.A., <laughs> but a lot of his programming, they listened to his show because he was such a great programmer. He could put Glenn Campbell on and then put... Doris Day on right after that. So, But you get a guy, back to the subject, like Glenn Campbell, and it was hard not to find a group of pop music listeners that didn't care for him. He was a musical artist for all seasons. And we haven't even gone into his acting career. He and no. Tim Darby, a yeah. true grit. Yeah. A, a opposite John Wayne. Of John all Wayne. And, and he held his own. Yeah. True grit in 1969 and uh, really... Uh, his musical career, his acting career, his television appearances, uh, and uh, we certainly will miss Glenn Campbell, but his music will live on. Glenn Campbell, born on the 22nd of April, 1936, and died on August 8th of 2017, and as I have uh, quoted on our website, on the Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight website, the Wichita lineman is still on the line. So we have other musical artists that we want to remember. Let's go ahead and uh, play another clip for you from someone who we're going to remember right now from our musical past. And give a listen. You call me a fool. You say it's a crazy scheme. This one's for real. Steely Dan, and uh, the vocalist you hear there is uh, Donald Fagan, and his associate, his very close associate, whom he established Steely Dan from was Walter Becker, who we lost on September, September 3rd of this year. Um, Steely Dan, very well-remembered group. And Mike, let's uh, let's turn it back over to you. Um, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan met very early on. Well, in school. They met in school, and interesting enough, we just talked about Glenn Campbell and Dirk Poor and Cotton Pickin' in Mississippi. These guys were on the other end of the spectrum. They were well-to-do, went to school in the, uh, in the Ivy League, northeast part of the country, uh, both musical protégés. Most of them, uh, they had already been accomplished musicians, Walter Becker, guitarist, of course, all thing, and keyboard and uh, wind instruments, 
But they got together and they started jamming together and working around some of the music ideas of the early 70s, late 60s, and came up with Steely Dan, which was interesting enough, one of the most differential music styles to arrive in the 70s. George, you'd have to agree, some of the songs, especially the lyrics, the musical ensembles were pretty basic chords, but the lyrics... Die behind the wheel. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, we've all kind of been there, but after what drinking think, scotch all night. <laughs> what I think is amazing about uh, Steely Dan is uh, not only, as you noted, Mike, the lyrics, but the way in which it was executed. There is a distinct sound and a style to them that you associated with the 70s, and yet it transcends the 70s, much like the Doors did in the 60s with their definitive L.A. sound. It's I wouldn't define it as an otherworldly feel, but I think for Steely Dan, I recall it then, as I do now, as being a sophisticated sound. I recall it as it being a fusion of cool jazz rock, cool jazz rock, and it had uh, an almost an ethereal feel to the music, and I somehow imagine, as you know, when you're listening to uh, Ricky, don't lose that number. That you're sitting there on a you know hot summer evening in Southern California, you know, sipping on your beverage or libation of choice, and you hear this in the background with the lights dimmed. And it to me is 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 an amazing song then as it is now. It's kind of a evocative of FM radio, you know. And as what you're saying, George, maybe uh, sitting out outside in the evening in the twilight enjoying a favorite libation and the radio's on it's cool outside and you're listening to this music from steely dan just very very it puts you kind of in a zone puts you in a mood well i remember when that song actually came out in 1974 and i and i remember having several parties uh you know in the backyard at that time and we had that on in the background we had the stereo equipment moved outside and you could hear it in the background on the fm station and uh, so when i hear that particular song it evokes a mood, a special time, and yet, while I associated with the 70s, I enjoy it as much now as I did then. I can't say that about other groups from the 70s, but I can definitely say it about Steely Dan. You think Steely Dan transcends the generations and the generations to come? I would agree with that, and Mike, I would offer another song for your consideration. Every time I hear Reeling in the Years, I immediately crank it up, especially if I hear it on an FM station in the car, because... I've even played that for some of my students at the University of California. Sometimes during the breaks, I'll put it on the YouTube because our computers are hooked up and I can put it up for the whole classroom. And I have students from all over the world, particularly from Brazil, that I play that for them and they go, oh my gosh, you know, that's just amazing. And to me, I thought, okay, it wasn't just Ricky Don't Lose That Number, it's some of their earlier stuff, Mm -hmm. that it's got that up-tempo, aggressive Mm -hmm. rock and roll style, but it's not dated. Well, and back to storybook lyrics. Any and all Steely Dan songs will tell a story. It can be Ricky Don't Lose That Number, which we all in our own interpretation can decide what that was about. Hey 19, yes. uh, which is a good visual. John Belushi doing Hey 19 right before the pre-ramp to a Saturday Night Live episode. All of the Steely Dan songs are colorful in the lyrics, and that's why we remember them. That's why they transcend. I think Donald Fagan did a concert with, I believe, Boz Skaggs. I'm pretty sure of it. Most recently, they did a tour, and over half of the audience were people that would be considered millennials or the younger people, the 30-somethings. And, of course, the other half are us, you know, the people who, who dug on the music. 
But one of the most interesting Walter Becker stories, and I will tell you this from my large memory repertoire of little rock tidbits, is the Becker look. It was called the Becker look. The Becker look, because Walter Becker actually, as a most accomplished guitarist, uh, you got to give him that. you got to give him creds for that. But he started out, especially with Steely Dan and his association with Donald Fagan, he started out as the group's bassist, the bass player. And the Becker look was the look, and you can see this because all you listeners out there in Galaxy Land are going to go watch this now on YouTube. Go look at Fleetwood Mac, go look at Hermit's Hermits, Rolling Stone, Bill Wyman, everything else. The Becker look is that dour look that all bass players have. They're standing off, usually off stage right, way over in the corner, and they've got this look as though they either need to go to the bathroom really bad or they're just dour that they'd rather be somewhere else, or they're so into the four bass riff lines that they can't think about anything else. That's become known in rock history as the Walter Becker look, the kind of prune face, non-smiling, very morose look, and that's always been applied to bass players throughout rock history. You can go look it up, folks. You can look this one up to <laughs> see if Mike B's blowing smoke or not. <laughs> I think what but Mike B is talking look. about can <clears throat> be expressed as seriousness of purpose. Yes. Okay. Seriousness of purpose. It's interesting, you, Mike, you mentioned the lyrics. The lyrics really, if you you know, read the lyrics to the songs, the lyrics are all fantastic. Yeah. They're all telling a story. And I think that's part of the appeal. And perhaps I'm wondering, how many of you remember, for example, the note-for-note rendition that they did of a a song that was uh, associated with Duke Ellington and James Miley titled East St. Louis Toodaloo? They did a note-for-note rendition of that. And I think what that did was that it was able to bring the past into the present, being the present at that time when they did the song, and it helped advance it into the future so that we're able to enjoy it in the same way. And I think this is another aspect of why Steely Dan is transcendent. They mm-hmm. were able to take something that is a classic from the long-distant past. From our perspective, it would have been just the past from his perspective when he did it, but he was able to bring it up to date and execute it flawlessly. I'm reflecting, George, on the fact that, you know, we were talking about the sort of the timelessness of Steely Dan. They remind me, that timelessness, it reminds me also of The Doors. They also seem to have that timelessness. They do. You can hear it today, and it doesn't seem like it's from 50 years ago. Yeah, you know it's from that era, and yet the way in which they execute it and the way in which it's sung, the way they play their instruments and the sound, there's an almost, you know, an otherworldly worldly feel to it, and a a sophistication that really sets them apart from their peers of that day. It doesn't necessarily make them superior, but it does make them distinctly different, and it's for that reason that we remember them so, and now with the advent of YouTube, you know, we can access it at any time and make that comparison. Absolutely. It's wonderful. Walter Becker was born on February 20th, 1950, and we lost him on September the 3rd of 2017. So, again, his music, along with that of Donald Fagan, continues on. What a true music album of our lives. We look at some of the songs. Of course, my favorite Steely Dan album of all times would be the one from 1977, Aja. Mm, Yes. Had Deacon Blues, Black Cow, Mm -hmm. Take Your Big Black Cow and Get Out of Here. I don't know what that was about, but interesting lyrics nonetheless. Peg, you still hear it on the airwaves. Josie. 
Oh, Josie, yeah. And yeah, it just, uh, I've worn the grooves off the one album, Aja, that I had. I went to CD, but it didn't sound as good. YouTube, forget about it. So I found another one at a record swap. And just, if you want to get a good glimpse of, of what good pop music, good heavy lyric, colorful lyric pop music was, get yourself a copy of Aja from 1977 and play it and that would be the song album of the great team songwriting team of donald fagan and walter becker rest in peace the becker look lives forever the becker movement we're going to go to a retro commercial don't go away we'll be right back here on galaxy moonbeam Nightside on galaxy nostalgia network sandwich so many kinds of soup You had your Campbell soup today. And we're back with Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside on Galaxy Nostalgia Network. That was a retro commercial for Campbell's Campbell soup, and sandwich. soup and Sandwich. Tomato soup and a grilled cheese sandwich. Oh, Wouldn't that sound good that right now? That sounds good about now. It's, oh, been a, it's mm. a breezy autumn afternoon here in San Diego at the Galaxy Studios. Nice and brisk and breezy, uh, almost middle of November, and that just sounded so good all it of a sudden. Sound Were you a cracker crusher, Smitty? Did you take the saltines in both hands and squeeze them together like like an accordion? I actually didn't, Mike. But no, you were. Di- were I you was, a dipper? I was a dipper. You were I was a dipper. A dipper. Were you a, a corner dipper. dipper, or did you submerge the whole half of the sauce? I was a corner dipper. A corner a dipper. Corner dipper. <laughs> I like the goldfish crackers. They're ready oh, to yeah. swim. Just yeah. drop them in, and they're swimming in the soup. <laughs> Why did I have a feeling you were a goldfish cracker guy, George? Anyway, Campbell's soup. Yeah, I like tomato. Mm, yeah. Mushroom was always good. Mushroom was good. Chicken oh. noodle was good when you were sick. When you were sick, when you had a cold. The person, yeah. the person that created all of the wonderful recipes that you can use mushroom soup for as the binder and flavor enhancer. Well, there's a book. That person deserves a Nobel Prize. <laughs> there are books written on recipes you can do with Campbell's soup. Oh, it's Jordan. amazing. I got one for my for a friend of mine for their wedding gift. <laughs> they didn't last long enough for the soup to boil, oh. but I remember. <laughs> anyway, folks, we're going back. This is this is the folks uh, notable in this in this episode musicians that we lost, American musicians, over the period of uh, 2017. Unfortunately, there'll be more by the time we do this show again. But we look back at Glenn Campbell. We talked about Walter Becker of Steely Dan. And here's one, especially if you grew up anywhere near the Ventura Freeway, George, or Reseda Boulevard. Uh, This is going to ring a bell for you folks. without without much ado at all you're going to remember 
the words, the music, the persona of none other than Tom Petty, who passed away recently toward the uh, end of the summer, or just right about... October 2nd. October uh, 2nd into mm-hmm. autumn. So, uh, wow, just that that's one of those shockers, Smitty, that... Tom Petty, he's not supposed yeah. to die. He, not yet. You know, no. He's not supposed to get old or die. Exactly. And I just picture him in the Alice in Wonderland, the video, don't come around here no more with his with his doorman hat and some of the other good memories. And Tom Petty, the the alter ego voice of Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a lot of memories, especially if you San Fernando Valley, some of the songs that he wrote that were centered to San Fernando Valley as well as L.A. I, I don't know how how much you guys were uh, fans of Tom Petty, but he was an American original that brought us in a time frame, especially growing up in, in middle class or suburbia America. And he's one of those, again, we talk about lyrics. He could tell a wonderful story in about three or four minutes just by the lyrics. He don't could. do me like that. Damn. Yeah, broken-hearted guy. Hey, you know. <laughs> Lay off. You've there done was, enough damage. Sure. There was an elegant simplicity to his style. There was an elegant simplicity. It's a very good way of phrasing it, George. And you look at his life and his career, and it exemplifies excellence at the highest level. I mean, not only uh, was he uh, awarded a Hollywood Walk of Fame status in 1999, but then he was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame just two years later. And then I believe he also received a Billboard Century Award, which is the highest honor for creative achievement. And that was received in 2005. And yet, as you noted, for all of that incredible record of accomplishments, you thought that there was still much more to come. And he was taken from us way too soon. Way too soon he passed away uh, from cardiac arrest, very sadly, on October 2nd. But... um Mike, you, I know, have a lot of memories of Tom Petty, that Los Angeles sound, that era, that epic of when he was in his prime. Yeah, album after album. Of course, I always, when we do these shows, when we have to say goodbye to someone, I always go back to the work they did in the 70s because, to me, most of the notables that are passing away, they they could have started in the 60s and they did some recordings in the 80s, but the 70s, in my young formative years, that's when I left from being a teenager to becoming a young adult to becoming a married guy and a dad and a working guy. And this music followed you all along the seasons of your life. And uh, you look at Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and some of the music that they put out, uh, rock music, just good concert, not above and beyond garage band music, but concert type music. You could fill a concert and go to a Tom Petty. You can go to a Heartbreakers concert and really know. First of all, you're going to get about a three-hour concert. Petty and the Heartbreakers didn't scrimp on their concerts. And you were going to get entertained, and there was not going to be a riot. And you were going to have 5,000 people just like you that came to enjoy the music. And uh, one of those artists that you seldom find where their B-sides of their singles were just as good as the A-sides. And you go down the list of the songs of Tom Petty and the albums of the Heartbreakers. And we talk about the American Songbook. And even when he was with the Traveling Woolberries, being in the company of, of Jeff Lynne, George Harrison, Roy Orbison, uh, Orbison, George Harrison, I, you know, Bob Dylan, and, and now Petty's gone. So 
were compilations of groups of superstars that would get together. There were no egos and, oh, no, I want the front mic. No, 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 I want to lead. It, it was egoless rock. And as you said, Smitty, Tom Petty, he was a plain guy. Mm-hmm. He was a plain guy. I never met him close up in person, went to a number of concerts, but he just seemed like the guy that was that lived up the street from you. Right. And maybe he'd come by to borrow your lawnmower. But he was the guy, and I've talked to some people that knew him. He'd sit out on his porch, and he'd make songs, and people would come by, and he'd stop and talk, and just a, an average guy. And you don't see a lot of average guys, especially in American music of any genre anymore. Yeah, I think that's evocative of a different era as well, where they weren't ego-driven. They enjoyed what they did. They enjoyed performing for their fans. They enjoyed giving enjoyment to people and performing these songs and they weren't out there as mike said i want the front microphone and you this is my area you stay away you know it was completely different attitude from what we see today to follow what mike had said earlier about petty and his life's work representing the seasons of life i would like to add something to that in terms of how people are woven into the tapestry of our lives but it's my understanding that Tom Petty was inspired by none other than Elvis Presley, mm-hmm. that he had met Elvis Presley on the set of uh, a favorite Elvis film of mine titled Follow That Dream, which was filmed in the early 1960s. And I believe that Mr. Petty's father was actually working on the set, and so he, being Tom Petty, was invited to be a part of it just to watch what was going on. He had the opportunity to meet with Elvis, and Elvis took time to spend with him, and it turns out that uh, that was, uh, shall we say, a life-changing moment. It was uh, a moment that inspired his interest in music. But we think about the persona of Elvis Presley and how his life touched so many others. And it seemed like he touched Petty's life in a very positive way because, as Mike noted, he was one that was very accessible, very friendly, uh, and was particularly good to his fans. He always gave them a good show. And I think that that is something that Petty may have uh, been inspired by from Elvis Presley, who always did the same thing. Would you agree? Absolutely. We talk about sports figures. We talk about Drysdale and Koufax. And after the game, they didn't hop in their Corvettes and race away and leave their fans, little kids with their baseballs to be autographed in their exhaust. They stopped and hung around and talked about things, with the exception of Mickey Mantle. And that's that's a different segment, different story altogether. I have memories of Mickey Mantle that we'll save for another show. But sports figures, American pop musicians, movie stars, mm-hmm. movie stars, because they realized who made them, who put them where they were. And the guys like Petty, you'd see him talk about Ventura Boulevard. You'd see him walking down Ventura Boulevard, and and he would go to the deli out there. And, and he would talk with everybody. Yeah. And I saw him. I didn't talk to him. Like I said, I've never had a face-to-face. He was in a camera store in 76 when I worked out in Montgomery Wards in, in Panorama City. He was on, on Encino Boulevard. And uh, he was in a camera shop picking up some film, some prints that he had dropped off. Just an average guy. Right. And, you know, he's spellbound. I'm, you know, I'm old enough. I'm in my 20s. But still, well, that's Tom Petty. Oh, wow. He takes pictures with a camera just like the rest of us do, and he goes and takes the film in, and he's looking at his snapshots. Wow, I had to tell everybody I knew about that that meetup. <laughs> How easily satisfied we were then. Well, and we tend to put our heroes, our, our rock stars and our movie stars and our sports heroes up on high, high pedestals. We do that. They don't do that. We do that to them. 
And in return, very true. In return, they have several ways to react. In in Petty's case, I'm going to give you your money's worth. You're going to get your money's worth. If you buy my records, I'm going to do my best. He knew who his customers, his fans, he knew the people that got him where he was. And he was from Gainesville, Florida. Didn't come up hard scrabble like a few of the people we've talked about and we're going to talk about, but he had some tough times. He was just a rocker. He's just, if you had to say, let's talk about a rocker then Tom Petty would have to be the center of that subject. He just loved the music and he loved to entertain. I think it sort of reminds me of of the compliment that you give to an athlete who is able to perform at the highest levels. And I believe it's it's a rather understated expression, but you can say he or she, they can play the game. They can play. Tom Petty could play. Yeah. I think his meeting with Elvis, uh, George, as you said, it definitely was a life-changing event, but I think it was a very positive move also. I was reading a little bit again, reading about these artists that we lost last night. Tom Petty had uh, a rather uh, difficult relationship with his father. Uh, There was Mm -hmm. a a great deal of friction, and his father couldn't accept that he wanted to be an artsy guy that wanted to do music. He probably wanted Tom to go into some other line of work. And so maybe the meeting with Elvis, although that had happened beforehand, was a good foundation that got laid first and to help Tom Petty deal with the friction with his dad that came up later. One certainly hopes so. Yes, and it certainly seems that way, too. Well, Tom Petty, we lost him on October 2nd of uh, this year, 2017, and he was born on October 20th of 1950. And Mike, Mm. you certainly had some good thoughts on Tom Petty. We did. We could do a whole hour show on on rock stars and Tom Petty, but on a happier, a smiley note, did you realize, George, that Tom Petty had a recurring role as the voice of Elroy, Lucky Kleinschmidt, on King of the Hill from 2004 to 2009? No a, way. He was a voice guy, too. Now all <laughs> wow. the listeners are going to go to YouTube and watch <laughs> and old... watch King of the Hill Yeah, watch encores yes. of King of the Hill. But yes. you know, This he, is remarkable. He was on a Simpsons episode, uh, How I Spent My Strummer Vacation, along with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, Lenny Kravitz, Brian Setzer... He spoofed himself. The other thing, he was self-depreciating, where he separating, where he would, he could make fun of himself. I think that's a characteristic of a lot of great people, yeah. uh, particularly uh, in the entertainment world, but also in other fields of endeavor, where you can be able to laugh at yourself and yeah. and truly understand uh, your humility and your humanity, and at the same time be able to uh, to keep it real. Yeah. 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 He was just an all-around good guy. Uh, he appeared in a 1997 film, The Postman, that was the one directed by Kevin Costner. Where yes. It was the apocalypse, and the they apocalypse. reestablished the postal service. Tom Petty was one of the guys. In the- <laughs> Somehow I don't think of him as being the postman. No. But now I, I, I get it. Well, he was the mayor of, I think he was the mayor of Bridge City. And they interviewed him after that. They kind of were goofing on him a little bit about his role as the mayor of Bridge City at the Apocalypse, where Kevin Costner's reestablishing the Pony Express. They said, what do you think about the role? And he goes, basically, I looked at that role as I portrayed myself in the future. <laughs> so yeah, is the king of the non-responsive answer. That's a good one. But yeah, Tom Petty, uh, listen to some of his music, and they said, hey, did you copy... Did you copy your music style from Bob Dylan? And he always replied, uh, no, I would have liked to, but <laughs> he, 
He was 15 years old when I was born, so I wouldn't have been able to pull it off. I thought that was a pretty good answer. <laughs> That's a very good answer. Bob Dylan loved him, though. Yeah. Get those two together and close your eyes. You don't know who's singing what. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, Tom Petty, we remember him as uh, one of the recent losses that we've had in the musical world. And here's another teaser to introduce our last segment on our program today. Give a listen to this. When Wilpa will call, and even is night. Well, that's the unmistakable voice, of course, of Fats Domino. And you talk about an iconic figure of the early 1960s rock and roll scene. Fats Domino, we lost him on October 24th of this year, 2017. And, uh, Mike, um, there were probably a lot of choices for music to introduce him as there were for our other artists. But Fats Domino just seemed to be in a class by himself. 35 records in the U.S. Billboard Top 40. 35 records. There were 10 initial inductees to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was among the 10. He was one of the pioneers of rock and roll music in a time when a lot of the music was considered race music or race records. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. He crossed over the line into contemporary American pop and did it with style. And this was Antoine Domino. You understand he was born in Louisiana. And I know all about Louisiana. My grandmother's from Louisiana. I know all about people who speak Louisiana Creole because he spoke Louisiana Creole, which is a dialect of French, long before he spoke English. So uh, he came up through a very poor section of uh, New Orleans where he returned uh, to the end of his life, the Lower Ninth Ward. And uh, you talk about somebody whose legacy enters every aspect of world entertainment Fats Domino's music can be found in a lot of movies, everything from a movie with Steve Martin that was titled after one of his songs called My Blue Heaven, but also Dirty Dancing, a number of songs. There are commercials that you can tell there's Fats Domino cuts in the music in the underbed, and just uh, American original entertainer. You can go through the history of his songs, and there's a song that's going to reach out to you, or more than one, during your times and your lives, especially in my times in the 60s, it's going to remind you of a time and place because of a Fats Domino song that was spinning on the top 40 station at the time. Mike, I want to follow on something that you said about um, Fats Domino and how he was a pioneer, not just in the context of uh, his work in the entertainment and musical industries, but also as a human being to help us all advance and to grow uh, as a society and, and and helping to advance and improve our, our culture. I would say that Fats Domino, in terms of his life work, his achievements, created new pathways for others to follow. He created new pathways for others to follow. And as such, he was also a transcendent figure, one that transcends uh, race or ethnicity 
or shall we say where you know a certain part of the country that you're from he seemed to rise above that and there was a, a likability about him and just the quality of his work was such that i think it was very instrumental in helping us to advance as a nation as a society and we owe him a great deal of thanks for those contributions absolutely and fats domino a very uh, humble very humble man as Mike pointed out, from New Orleans, Louisiana, returned to New Orleans, Louisiana, and lived in the was it the Ninth Ward, Mike? The, the, the Lower Ninth. The Lower Ninth yeah. Ward that he lived there until sadly Hurricane Katrina came by and destroyed that area. And then even more sad uh, was that he was uh, out of communication for a while during that time, and it was presumed that he had passed away at that point. Someone came along. And very sadly, on the wall of his house, wrote, R.I.P., rest in peace, Fats, we will miss you. At that, people broke into his house and took everything, absolutely everything that they owned. They were left with nothing. Really, really tragic. Uh, They wound up uh, being uh, rescued. He was fine. He and his family were fine. But kind of a very sad living in that area and then to have that happen. The hurricane, enough of a catastrophe, a natural catastrophe to to have happened and to have lost everything at the hands of looters, basically. But um, getting back to what we were saying about his music on a much more happier note, you think about that era and immediately Fats, Fats Domino comes to mind. As Mike pointed out, his music is is everywhere. It's in commercials and movies. We think of that era and we uh, we associate it with Fats Domino. And even if you don't see his face, you feel his presence. Yes. I remember uh, on the television show Happy Days, which ran from 1974 <laughs> to course. 1984. Yeah. I remember in the early years of that program, you always would see Fats Domino's name in the closing credits. You know, for various songs that were playing in the background. But then as the series evolved and became more popular, the Richie Cunningham character that was so ably played by Ron Howard, how many times did you hear him singing the iconic song uh, Blueberry Hill? I think he did it you know, quite a bit uh, during the ensuing years. And uh, as a result of that, Fats had a presence that, you know, we connect with the 50s, but here we are in the 70s and the 80s, and he continues to be as contemporary at that period as he was decades before. And one of the things that I was going to mention here, that when I think of Fats Domino, is connection with Ricky Nelson. Ricky Nelson was able to break into the uh, musical world by doing a rendition of one of Fats' early hits, I'm Walking. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ricky did very well, kind of put his own style on it. And I guess that uh, both Ricky Nelson and Fats Domino were very, very good friends because, and there's a sad aspect to this, but uh, at the end of uh, Ricky Nelson's life, just before he was killed in that plane crash on New Year's of 1985-86, that uh, he and Fats Domino were doing a series of concerts, Mike Bragg. Do you recall that? They were wonderful concerts in which both uh, Ricky and Fats were playing together, and they were actually inspiring new generations of fans to uh, appreciate uh, the music that both of them were associated with. Yeah, well, you know, copy is the best form of uh, flattery, and uh Fats Domino appeared in Las Vegas with Elvis Presley, and he was an important influence in the 60s and 70s, and it was an, he was acknowledged by most of the top artists in pop music in the 60s and 70s as being the true father of the boogie-woogie rock and roll genre. In fact, Elvis Presley, he introduced 
Fats Domino at one of his Vegas concerts in the 70s saying, by the way, f- by the way, folks, by, by, hello, hello, thank you very much. <laughs> this gentleman was a huge influence on me when I started out. And then he said in a 1957 interview, a lot of people think I started this business. Truth be told, rock and roll was here a long time before I came along, and nobody can sing that music like colored people. Let's face it, I can't sing like Fats Domino can. I know that, and no one ever will be able to sing like Fats Domino. So he is the king. And this was from Elvis Presley at his peak. So so here's Elvis trying yeah. to also create new pathways and, and imbue an important element in our advancement as a society to develop greater understanding and, and empathy. Well, you're a Beatles guy, too. Lennon and McCartney, they were total avid followers of Very the, much so. the Fats Domino Boogie Woogie Piano style. Now, here we go, George. Now, you and I get to banter now. That famous Beatles song, Lady Madonna. Yes. That was written by Paul McCartney in emulation of Fats Domino's boogie-woogie piano style. Think about it. Dun, 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 of course. Lady Madonna. Of course. Combining it with a nod to Humphrey Littleton's 56 hit, which was a song called Bad Penny Blues. Yes. But Fats Domino came back and recorded Lady Madonna after Paul McCartney wrote that song. In emulation and honor and respect of Fats Domino's piano style, he wrote Lady Madonna, Fats Domino came back and re-recorded it in his style. So it hit the top 100 two times, once by the Beatles, McCartney, and the other by Fats. There are other cover songs by the Beatles. The Beatles covered a lot of Fats Domino songs. It's interesting how uh, you look at Fats Domino in terms of his persona, his music, his style, how it's woven into the tapestry of music history and all of these great artists, whether it's the Beatles, whether it's Elvis Presley, whether it's in a popular television show later in in the 70s and 80s, and then with nostalgia concerts beyond that, that uh, his presence is is part of the scene, and you don't realize it until you start to deconstruct it. It's true that Fats Domino's music kind of is interwoven in our American culture in so many ways, uh, you know, as you were saying, George, in films and TV commercials. And we think of that era, we think of Fats Domino. You have to do that. You have to. And, it's, and, and I think what's really special about when we honor such great people like Fats Domino. We we appreciate them, you know, for their artistry. We appreciate them also for their humanity. Because by every account that I have read, he was a very good family man. I think that mm-hmm. he and his wife were married uh, well over six decades, if, yeah. I, if I recall yeah. correctly. They were married until her passing. She passed away. She preceded him in, in death. And, and uh, how often do you hear about that in the entertainment industry? So he obviously... Uh, strive to live uh, not only an inspired life, but I would say an ethical life. And the other thing that I'm reading also about Fats Domino was his humility and his, his just being very quiet, very... His graciousness. His graciousness, George, yeah, very well phrased, his graciousness, uh, something that we certainly don't see nowadays. Well, we're certainly going to miss him, but thanks to the wonders of uh, technology, be it YouTube and uh, the digital remastering, of uh, all of these wonderful programs, uh, we are able to continue to not only enjoy his music, but it will be enjoyed by succeeding uh, generations. Well, all over the country, people want to know what happened to Fats Domino. Well, unfortunately, Fats Domino left us uh, last month at the age of 89. He will be remembered. Uh, There was speculation in 2005 that he was lost in the floodwaters of Hurricane Katrina, and he got one of the biggest laughs of his career and his life. 
When they found him at the Superdome, he had been airlifted off the roof of his three-story home in the lower Ninth Ward and had been airlifted in back to the Superdome where there was no plumbing, no sanitation, no lights, and he was just a, another refugee. But he lived to tell about it and laugh about it, and best yet, what a superstar. He participated in concerts with, with Dr. John for a charity fundraising events to help the people less fortunate than him. Even though this guy had lost all of his memorabilia, all of his awards, all of his jewelry, his favorite piano, all lost in the flood, he came back two years later to join in with Dr. John and several other notables to develop funds, to raise funds for the people in the Ninth Ward that were a lot worse off than him, that lost totally everything. He blessed us both in tangible and in intangible ways. And I think that that great act of humanity that you just so eloquently described, Mike, to me, that may be even equally, if not more important than anything else he ever did. And he cared about his community, again, living in the Lower Ninth Ward and being there even after he had become famous. He could have lived pretty much anywhere he wanted, but he remained in his home area, the Lower Ninth Ward, Fats Domino, born on February 26, 1928, and died on October 24th of 2017. So we remember him as we remember all of our other artists that we cover today, Glenn Campbell, Walter Becker, Tom Petty, Fats Domino. May they all rest in peace, and we all are all beneficiaries of their music and their artistry, which they've left behind. Well, that's almost all the time we have for our program. We want to thank you very much for joining us, and we want to remind you that we would love to hear from you. If you have memories of any of these wonderful artists, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Or any other topic that you'd like to talk to us about, shoot us an email. Our email address is galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail.com, galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail.com. Our website is galaxymoonbeamnightsite. Don't forget on our website, our good buddy George Halakos here posts a wonderful blog page every month. He's keeping our page alive, and we're so grateful to him for that. Don't forget the Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite page on Facebook. We prefer you connect with us on Facebook because we can get back to you quicker. But uh, if you send us an email and don't hear from us right away, don't despair. We will get back to you. We answer every email. And all of our shows, our over 200 programs, are now available for your listening pleasure on iTunes and on Mixcloud.com. And so that brings us to the end of our program. We thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. This is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.